Welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast, helping you propel your writing business to a whole new level. And now, here's your host, Ed Gandia. Hey there, thank you for joining me for episode 81 of the High Income Business Writing Podcast. My name is Ed Gandia, and this is the podcast for business writers and copywriters who want to take their writing businesses to the six-figure level or the part-time equivalent. As a quick reminder, you can find detailed show notes for this episode by going to b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 81. You know, if you've been freelancing for at least a couple of years, chances are that you've had trouble getting paid at some point by a client. Maybe the client was slow to pay you, or they lost your invoice, or they held your payment for some weird and unfair reason. And when these things happen, you have a choice. You, know, you can rant about it. You can foam at the mouth, call Tony Soprano to help you out. You could lose sleep over this and you know, just go to social media and really raise some, some hell. But you know that, that's one way of doing it. Um, and it's not the only way, and it might not be the best way necessarily to at least get what you really want out of this. You can also, instead of doing all those things, use this as a learning experience. And you can change what you do in order to prevent this sort of thing from happening again, or at least to prevent it from happening as frequently as it might be happening to you. In this episode, my guest is a lady by the name of Katie Lane. Katie is a very smart lady. She's a super person. She is actually a, an attorney who works with freelancers and artists. So she really understands our world. And what you'll hear here over the next 30, 40 minutes or so will be some very practical ideas for preventing these nightmares from happening in the first place. So if you've had this problem happen to you or whether you have or you haven't, it doesn't really matter. I urge you to listen to Katie's advice some great ideas here on what I think is the best solution to this dilemma that really at the end of the day is going to happen at some point when you're in business for yourself. So hope you enjoy it, and I'll come back at the end with a quick announcement. Hey, Katie, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, so am I. It, uh, this, is, this is a topic that I've been asked about quite a bit, and I haven't really addressed it in the show before, at least not the way we're going to address it. So I'm really excited to get right into it. But before we do that, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you do, the work you do, the kind of clients you work with, and maybe why you do this, why you enjoy it? Yeah, sure thing. I'm an attorney and a negotiation coach, and I focus on working with freelancers and artists, people who are working for themselves. Um, I This is actually exactly what I wanted to do when I went to law school 100 years ago. So I'm glad that I have finally gotten to the place in my practice where I get to do it full-time instead of part-time or on the side. Um, started my practice about uh, three and a half years ago. Prior to that, I, I had a blog called workmadeforhire.net, which is just giving negotiation advice and basic legal education to people who are working for themselves because I don't think there are enough resources out there and I don't think that there are enough lawyers who are taking it seriously that um, you know these people have 
businesses and they have real valid questions and need help. So uh, my practice evolved from the blog and I did that part time for about two years while I uh, saved money from my day job and I've been doing it full time for a little over a year now. Oh, that's awesome. Good yeah, for you. Yeah, it's pretty great. So I'm assuming, and you, so you work with uh, self-employed professionals, a lot of creative types. Uh, it sounds like really in all professions. Yeah, I tend to focus on working with people in the in creative industries. A lot of my clients are um, comics creators, authors, designers. Um, I also really like the uh, the open source software community. So I work with developers and some designers over there too. And I'm assuming you work with clients all over the country. I do. I'm lucky in that because I'm doing both legal work and negotiation work, I have I, I, I can work with more people. Um, also, most of the work that I'm doing is related to contracts, helping people make sure that their contracts are, in, well, making sure that they have them, <laughs> number one, and then making sure that the contracts they have are in good working order and have the tools that they need should something go wrong. So a lot of the work that I end up doing is related to, you know, things like copyright and getting paid, um, managing your intellectual property, that sort of thing. Cool. All right. So, uh, in terms of getting paid, let me kind of frame it the way that, that, uh, some of our, my listeners have, have explained it to me. Um, it's, it's not so much the, Hey, you know, what's the trend, you know, is it getting worse out there? Um, although I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. You know, if you're seeing any kind of trend or is it basically the same it's always been? Um, but the, the really the biggest issue is, look, I can't afford to, um, to, to kind of finance my client's projects. You know, I, I need right. to get paid uh, relatively quickly. I, I know that there are things that I could do on my end that I have control over to, 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 to shorten that window, but I'm not sure what they are. I've tried a few things and it seems like it, it doesn't matter what the client is. Uh, it, it's always taken me a long time to get paid. So uh, what I'd like to kind of focus our conversation on is maybe a handful of ideas, things that you've seen make a dramatic difference in your ability to get paid and get paid faster. How does that sound? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like that. A lot of my um, getting paid advice comes from the fact that I used to manage the software and hardware contracts for a local utility. And in doing that, I also managed the professional services contracts. And um, in that role for the company, I got to see firsthand, one, how the company thought of uh, contractors that they were contracting that they were contracting with, but also things that contractors could have done to get the company's attention. And in my role, I couldn't say, hey, do this thing. But now that I'm out on my own and, and working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I can say, hey, this is how to get a company to take you seriously. And a lot of what it is is just making the company see you as as a company, as a small business, rather than just as an individual. Because for whatever reason, they take it much more seriously when they are dealing with another business than they are when they think that they're just dealing with another person. Interesting. So let's start there. So when, when you're talking about, uh, is, is this have to do with the way you portray yourself? Does this have to do with the way you've structured your business legally? What are we talking about specifically in order to get them to take you a little bit more seriously? I think, I think it has to do with both of those things. One of the things about structuring your business legally is that, honestly, it's more helpful 
to you uh, as an individual. It protects it protects the things that you own and that are important to you. But it can also signal to the other person, hey, this is actually a company. This is not somebody who is doing it um, on the side for fun. For whatever reason, uh, companies see free, tend to see freelancers as somebody who is doing something until they get, quote, a real job or until they, um, they are able to land full-time work. But there are a lot of freelancers for whom this this is their full-time job. This is real work. And this is very important. So to just shift the perspective of the companies that they're dealing with, I, I encourage my clients to look into either incorporating or setting up an LLC, using a name for your business that is separate from your your name, your individual name, so that it it, it not only is, but sounds like an entity that is separate from yourself and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the other thing is just in how, how you're presenting yourself, um, the fact that you have a contract, the fact that that contract is thoughtful, um, that it is expressing to the other side, I am the expert in knowing what's important for our jobs to be successful. So you're hiring me to do a job for you, and I'm going to tell you how we're going to get it done really, really well. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to sign your contract, but just by starting out and saying, hey, here's the paperwork we need to get signed to get get going, they're going to take you more seriously because you look familiar to them. One of the things that I think uh, is really important when we, we think about negotiating and thinking about influencing other people's behavior is people tend to do things that are familiar to them or that they feel comfortable with. So if it's possible to present something that you want them to do as something that is familiar, that they know, that they don't have to learn a lot about or you know squint their eyes and, and cock their head to understand, you're more likely to get them to act than, um, than you would be if you're expecting them to come even, you know, further towards your perspective uh, to do whatever it is you want them to do. Yeah, don't don't get them to think uh, or or any red flags to go up. Make it as kind of vanilla and standard as possible so that they, they feel comfortable with it and maybe ask fewer questions. Right. Yeah, and the, the the other thing is that just because you are making it easier for your clients to work with you doesn't mean you are running your business in a way that doesn't feel authentic to you or genuine to you. You're, you're running your business based on your values and what's important to you, but you're making sure that it makes sense to your client to do what you want them to do, including paying you. <laughs> um, and and that's that's the thing is is making the client see that paying you is really an investment in themselves as opposed to um, letting money go. They are buying something of enormous value from you, and you are going to be able to in in turn give them something that is going to um, help them help them grow their business or help them with their reputation or, or help them make more money. Uh, so one, one of those things is, is positioning payment not just as uh, payment for services, but a- as really an investment in themselves. And part of that, as you well know, goes back to how you present the work that you're going to do for them. So how you present it in terms of pricing, how you how you talk about and describe the work that's going to be done over the course of the project, and, and really thinking about their perspective and what's important to them. You know, and it, it seems like there's two sides here, though, that you have to be concerned about, especially if you're going after the corporate market. There's your, your champion, mm-hmm. or the person who hired you, mm-hmm. and then there is their accounts payable department and you know there might mm-hmm. be other layers here but um 
it it seems to me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that if you can do a really good job with your positioning and the way you position your value with your champion, that makes it a lot easier for them to to present it that way and to make sure that it gets handled properly on the payables side. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, there is. I, I don't think people actually ask their champions enough questions about the internal politics and policies of, of things like getting paid and what do I need to do to make this easy for you or what what should I, I, I take into consideration when I was um, when I was working for that utility managing their their IT contracts, one of the things I would always do with a new salesperson is give them a half hour to ask any question that they wanted. And I would explain our budgeting cycle and I would explain our payment cycle. And that was that was their free time. It was a AMA. But I figured if I could give you that information, you're in a better position to serve, you know, my clients, my company well, because you're not going to get tied up with uh, the administrative stuff. So one of the things I encourage my clients to do, especially if you're working um, with with corporate clients, with with companies that are you know relatively big or me- even medium sized sometimes, is to ask that champion for you know 30 minutes to make sure you understand what you need to do so that you're sending invoices to the right person so that you understand internally how they work, what's important to them. Um, I encourage people to do things like, all right, do I need to put my contract a number on the on the invoice? Uh, who does the invoice need to go to? Can I have their phone number and their email so I can follow up with them? And then I also encourage people, you send, whenever you're sending an invoice, it goes to accounts payable, but you're also sending a copy to that the person that you're working for, so your champion or the, the person that hired and is using your services and saying, sent this in today, just wanted you to, to have a heads up. Please let me know if you have any questions. But having more touch points and being more aware of it internally what's going on can can really save you time on the back end makes perfect sense i want to take a, a step back katie real quick um before we kind of walk away from this uh, because i get asked a lot and you touched on it briefly but i wanted to see if you had any additional suggestions or insights people ask me all the time should i incorporate if so what structure what what type of, of corporate structure should I adopt? What would be your advice to someone out there asking that question? My um, sort of cheeky response when people ask me if they should set up a business structure is, um, do you have anything you like that you wouldn't want to lose? Uh, <laughs> so if you have a car or a house or a retirement account or a savings account that you really wouldn't want to lose if something went wrong, um, it is in your interest to look into setting up a business structure. Uh, in general, um, uh, and structures are different from state to state, so you can go to your Secretary of State's website and, and get the lowdown on, on the different options you have. But in general, a limited liability company um, works for a lot of solo solo businesses because uh, it provides you the liability protection. So creating, making sure that the company is separate from you. So you're protecting those personal assets that are important to you. And the company is the one that's responsible for fulfilling obligations and paying debts. Um, with that in mind, the company has to be properly financed to be able to do those things. So you, you can't just set up a, a shell and not leave any money in the in the corporate bank account, that sort of thing. But a limited liability company provides that protection and separation that a lot of solos are looking for. Depending on your income situation, um, incorporating as, as a corporation 
uh, could be a better idea. Um, I usually encourage people to talk to their accountants, and if they tell me they don't have an accountant, I tell them that they need to hire an accountant before they hire me. Um, uh, but they should talk to their accountant about what makes the most sense from an income standpoint, because really with corporations or limited li liability companies, um, you can do a lot of the same things. Um, one of the things you can't do with a limited, limited liability company is issue stock. So if you're looking for investors, that might be something to consider. But on the whole, you can, you can hire employees, you can enter contracts, you can do all of the things. You can hire independent contractors. You can do all of the things that you might want to do to run your company. But um, when it comes to taxes, that's usually where m most people find um, the biggest difference. Okay, perfect, and and I'm glad you. That's a great answer um, that I think will 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 help some people get get moving in in the right direction. So we talked about legal structure. We talked about position, how you position your work and your value, right, as an investment. Uh, we mm -hmm. talked about uh, getting into getting to know a client's uh, kind of payment process. Uh, their invoicing, processing, and, and so forth, and, and ask and make sure you know that and learn that up front as best you can. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about maybe kind of contracts. So things that you should have or you should think about, including in your contract, that will, again, minimize the possibility of payments getting delayed or payments just not, never getting to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the important things in, in, in realizing about getting paid is that you're constantly underscoring the same message. So before you can really get to contract language, you have to sit down and figure out what are the best policies and procedures for your company regarding getting paid. For instance, um, how many days uh, do you want to get paid from the, the release of the invoice. Um, what are you going to do if somebody pays you late? How long are you going to keep working if payment hasn't come in? So sitting down and answering those sorts of questions can be really important before you even get to the contract because then you know what your company is going to do and what your company's standard is. Uh, there's a lot of power in being able to say, I mean, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard from their clients, well, that's our policy. There's a lot of power in being able to say the same thing back. You know, our company's policy is X. If you want an exception to that, there are going to be, you know, either these additional ramifications or uh, additional fees to compensate for the fact that we're doing something contrary to our policy. Mm -hmm. um, but once you understand what's going to be most important and supportive to your company, you can then look to the contract and say, okay, I want to make sure that my contract is supporting my policies and that I have the tools necessary to, to enforce those policies if I need them. So, um, for instance, if you uh, if you're going to charge a late fee when a client is late with a payment, you need to decide how many days late will that late fee. Um, how many days late does the invoice have to be before you assess the late fee? What the late fee is, um, and then what happens if they still don't pay after that? So. In the invoice section of the contract, it's going to clearly state that invoices are due within 21 days of issuance or checks are due within 21 days of issuance of the invoice. Any uh, payment that is more than five days after the due date is going to be assessed a $25 late fee. And um, any uh, account that remains unpaid for more than 30 days after the due date, work will have to stop until um, until the bill is settled. That sort of thing. Uh, where you're, you're clearly laying out uh, consequences for not doing the standard thing. Um, 
the other thing that I encourage people to think about are um, termination fees. And I, I differentiate between a termination fee and a kill fee. Um, to me, a kill fee typically means you can take that work and use it somewhere else. You can still get value out of the thing that you have created. Whereas a termination fee is somebody sort of cutting and running and you can't really do anything with what you've created and um, you've also lost that time and that investment with that client. And I encourage people to look at termination fees in the termination section of their contract as opposed to in the payment section of their contract because the termination section of the contract is where everybody's going to go if they need to terminate, if they need to walk away for some reason. And so if you put in there, if this is terminated early for any reason other than a breach by me, then, and that's basically saying, um, so long as I've kept up my end of the bargain, if you want to walk away from the, the contract, you can do that, but you're going to have to pay for it. Um, so a termination fee will apply. And uh, people, you know, I, I encourage people to pick a termination fee that is going to discourage somebody from walking away willy-nilly. And that could be a percentage of the total project cost. It could be a flat fee. But it's likely going to change depending on the size and value of the project that you're working on. So you're probably going to have to think about it um, for, each, uh, for each project that you engage in. But st stuff like that, having those tools available so that if something goes wrong, you know immediately what to do. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to convince the client to do the right thing. You merely say, hey, we agreed that if you paid late, there was a $25 uh, late fee. So you need to pay that uh, within the next you know, 10 days and everything's going to be fine. If you don't pay it, we're going to have to stop work. And any, any delay or harm that comes from having to stop work because you didn't pay is your responsibility because we've already agreed to that in the contract. You know what I like about this is I find that it's easier to, to decide on these issues before you're emotionally involved in them <laughs> because the moment it absolutely. happens, you're not going to be absolutely clear, right? So yeah, yeah. you're going to be emotional. So what this does is it gives you a set of guidelines uh, to, to follow when the emotions are running high and that way you can make the best decisions. The best time to make those decisions is before you're emotionally involved and think about it. Like one big thing for me has always been, this is probably the biggest is uh, I my terms clearly state that I will invoice one week after submitting an initial draft. Mm -hmm. um, so in other words, I'm tying my final payment to mm -hmm. when I submit the initial draft of the, of the work, not when the client decides this is final, right? Because I right. have no control over how many people are going to see this, how long it's going to take. Um, and I know it sounds like common sense, but I would say I'm in the minority. I, I think maybe 10% of the people I talk with do something similar. Everybody else goes by, well, when it's final, when it's finalized. Well, that could be months. Right. You know? And and that's, that's really because that's what clients push for, right? And when you do, when you start out from a position when you're negotiating where you're entirely deferential to the other side, you have a lot less wiggle room. You have a and you have a lot less. You have fewer tools to use should something go wrong. And I I am a big fan of tying payment to you providing something to your client. So for instance, if you're using milestone payments, uh, if it's a longer project, and so um, it's not going to be just an, an one draft of something. It's going to go on for a while. Uh, 
I encourage people to tie those milestone payments to times in which you are providing something to the client. So the client starts associating, I get something of value and I pay for it. That is the exchange. And then you're also not waiting around for them to, you know, have their internal committee meeting um, and decide that, you know, they want 20 different changes that were not part of the scope of work. Um, if you do... If you do what you've suggested, which is the final invoice after providing that initial draft, um, I do encourage people to include somewhere in their contract that should the scope of work be broadened after that draft, uh, you have the right to uh, charge uh, either a fee based on what the work is or an hourly rate uh, for that additional work. Makes sense. I like yeah. that. And I love the way you talked about uh, termination fees. I hadn't thought about that before. I was, always, I was always thinking about kill fees, but not termination fees. So let's just take a, a, an example. Because you say should be high enough to discourage. Let's say it's a $5,000 project. And I'm sure mm-hmm. you know, it's up to the individual, of, of course. But uh, you know, what, what would you say would make a bad and a good uh, termination fee? So $500 or... $2,000. Yeah, I, th- I think $500 is too low in that instance because I can absorb that cost relatively easily. Um, as you're getting more into the, the thousands of dollars, you're probably getting closer to what you want. And these are situations where it really is a convenience fee, right? The, the client isn't getting out of the project because... Um, uh, because you haven't been doing the work. The client is trying to get out of the project because internally something has changed or they've decided to go in another direction or you know, fill in the blank excuse. But the fact of the matter is you held up your end of the bargain and now they want out. Okay, that's fine. They get to pay for it. So in, in a $5,000 project, I would think you know something around um, $1,500, $2,000 would be a reasonable termination fee. Uh, in that instance, also, I would probably present it as a percentage of the total fee uh, in the contract itself, so that it's you know, it it's clear what you're doing. Um, but they're probably not going to f- do the math until they want to get out of the the contract. <laughs> yeah. And at that point in time, they will uh, realize that it's not uh, in their best interest to do so. So it's a it's a little bit different from how I, I, I sometimes recommend you present um, information in a contract. I like, I like to be really clear and upfront. But when it comes to agreeing to the terms initially when everybody's happy, I, I think that percentage is a lot less scary because nobody's anticipating we're going to leave the contract. Whereas once they've decided they want to leave the contract, having them go through the process of doing the math just forces them to be more thoughtful and decide, okay, is this really worth it to me to do this? Um, and chances are um, they they will come back and say, okay, let's, let's finish this and let's finish this right instead of me paying essentially for the benefit of walking away from an obligation. Yeah, because like you said earlier, they're not getting anything. So they can't say, yeah. okay, well, I'll pay it, but you got to get me this. No. So I can keep yeah. going with it or hire somebody else. Yeah, and I've I've had um, I've had interesting conversations with other attorneys uh, who are representing another side who really want the ability for their client to one walk away and then walk away with files um, and the right to use those files in the future. And I, and I, I I've said it over and over and over again. And I've even had clients walk away from from situations where we say no, the, the termination fee is not there. Because um, you know y- you're unhappy with the work, or because uh, you know I'm not 
my client isn't doing something. It's there because you just want to get out. You don't want the bother of trying to fix it. So you're not going to walk away with anything that we've done. Um, and, and that is another reason why I think uh, uh, another important tool in your your contracts as far as getting paid is how you deal with intellectual property and being really clear to the client at, at what point in time do they own what you've created. Um, I prefer that they own it once they've paid for it. Um, but that means that you're not doing work for hire because with a work for hire agreement, you're, they own it as soon as you create it. Um, so I, I prefer when my clients own the intellectual property up until the point that the client pays for the work, at which point the intellectual property is transferred to the client and the client can do whatever they want with it. Um, and usually I encourage my clients to reserve certain rights, like being able to use it in their portfolio or that sort of thing. So so how does that play into the whole work for hire thing if you're suggesting that you know they own it until, until they've been paid? So with work for hire, you can't use that tool, uh, essentially, is, is the problem. And it's a tool to encourage payment, right? Because if we're only transferring intellectual property when the person when the person's paid you for the work, then it encourages them to pay you. If they want to use the work, they've got to pay you. But in situations where a client is asking for a work for hire uh, deal, the client owns the work as soon as you create it. So immediately they own it. And you have uh, you don't have the ability to encourage payment by withholding intellectual property because you don't own anything. So that's one of the reasons I, I encourage people to be really mindful when they're doing work for hire. Uh, it can be worthwhile. It can be perfectly fine. But be really mindful when you're going into it and making sure that you're getting compensated at a rate that um, th- that adjusts for the fact that, one, you're not going to own this and you're not going to have rights to it, but also um, that you have other payment tools in there, things like late fees, things like um, being able to stop work uh, if they haven't paid you for a while. Uh, make sure that you have other tools in there so that if sh- something should go wrong, you you do have some sort of recourse. And it's, re- it's, sorry, it's recourse that present, calm, cool, collected you figured out for future... Um, frustrated, angry that you're having to deal with this, you. <laughs> no kidding. I've been there. So <laughs> just, just before we go on, I just want to make sure, can you clarify, for those of you who don't know, what work for hire means? Sure. So work for hire means that um, you, have to have a, you have to have a contract. It has to say in writing that the work is a work made for hire or work for hire. And what that means is the um, client who is hiring you to create the thing owns the intellectual property, owns the copyright in what you are creating from the moment that it's created. For a work for hire to be a valid work for hire, you do need that writing element, and it does need to be ex- explicit. Um, I also encourage clients that that work for hire has to be established before work begins. So the contract should be signed before work begins. And I say that because of how what it means when something's work for hire. It means that from the second it's created, the other party owns it. And so if you've already started creating it, there's there's really no way of going back in time and saying, wait, 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 we meant this other thing. Um, so I, I encourage people to um, make sure that the contract is, is 
clearly laid out before work begins to not start work before you've got a signed contract from the other side. Um, and it typically with work for hire, it needs to be a, one of a, a, a set number of um, types of work to be able to be enforceable as a work for hire. Uh, many times, freelancers are asked to do work that does not f- fulfill one of those categories. Um, and if you go to the if you go to copyright.gov and you look up the work for hire flyer that the uh, copyright office has, it's, it's very helpful. But typically, um, freelancers aren't always doing work that would, f- f- that would uh, be in one of those categories. And as a result, their contracts will have what I call a belt and suspenders approach, where the belt is, hey, this is a work for hire and I own it from the very beginning. But then the suspenders will be, but if it isn't a work for hire for any reason, then you're assigning me the copyright um, and you can't revoke that assignment. And what assignment means is you're selling it. Um, you know, you don't own it. You are saying this other person owns it. Does that Clarify yeah, it? it it does, and I guess the the follow up question is, what would be the advantage of of structuring it as a work for hire engagement versus uh, the other? Yeah, so um, work for hire engagements can be really good for quick stuff, for stuff that you don't care a whole ton about, for stuff that you're not going to have any reason to reuse, um, for a client who is willing to pay you a ridiculous amount of money for work that is not maybe your first choice, but um, is definitely pay the bills kind of work. Work for hire can be good for those situations. It can also be good for situations where, you know, if you're looking at... um, work in the entertainment industry, a lot of times stuff is work for hire, but that's going to be a situation where you're playing, you're essentially, you're playing with somebody else's toys, right? So um, if I get the opportunity to write Spider-Man, I know I don't own Spider-Man, the Spider-Man character, but maybe the opportunity for me to write a story um, for for Spider-Man is such a such an advantage to my career that I'm I'm willing to say I don't own this going forward. Um, so work for hire can be perfectly reasonable. You just want to go into it with your eyes wide open and to understand um, what it is you're agreeing to do. That makes sense. That makes sense. So what other elements? And I like how you started this by really asking yourself what's important to you before you get to the down to the weeds. But now that we're getting down into the weeds, what other elements do you feel? are important to to include in your contract? Those are, I think we've touched on a lot of them. And, and again, it's, it's setting up that story and that narrative of if something happens that we don't want to happen, um, here are the steps that we're both going to follow. Other things that can be important are um, usually at the end of the contract, it will say this is governed by such and such state law and we're both agreeing to a particular venue. Um, I encourage clients to write out an exception and say, um, except for any claim that's suitable for small claim court, I agree to go to whatever state to litigate. And the reason that I encourage them to do that is that if you are in a situation where you haven't been paid and you want to recoup payment, instead of, um, say, for instance, if, if you and I had a contract together and I had been a bad client and not paid you, um, so instead of you having to come all the way to Oregon to sue me, um, you could re- you could go to small claims court and, and and at home and um, 
and recoup your money there rather than having to travel or pay additional fees to file in a in a foreign state. Oh, gosh. So I could do it here in my hometown, file yep. here, and then they yep. will go after you over there in, in Oregon. Yeah, they will. They will. There's a whole process of um, of small claims and how you serve people, particularly if they're out of state. But um, part of the reason that contracts have that section is one, it tells the judge, okay, if you're interpreting this, I want you to follow these rules. But the other thing it says is, um, if we're going to fight about it, we're going to fight about it here. Typically, it's in the favor of the company whose contract it is because they don't want to travel. Um, they don't want to take on additional expenses to be able to litigate the contract. So they'll say it's it's in my home state or my home county, which is perfectly reasonable if it is something significant. But if you're just trying to get paid, chances are that it's going to qualify for a small claim and you want the ability to um, be able to do that from home with limited travel and, and hassle. Makes sense. Uh, so that leads to kind of the inevitable question, which is what happens if the client wants me and expects me to use their contract and they, they don't even want to look at mine? Yeah, and that I, I think is uh, normal, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but what you should, what I encourage people to do is to one, understand what's in your contract, understand what your policies are, and have that, that listed out, and then read through um, their contract sort of comparing it to what your standards are. And where you see there's a difference, make changes. Um, say, you know what, uh, I see here that you pay within 60 days. Um, the prices that I've quoted for this particular project are based on a 30-day uh, payment term. So if you want to stick to that 60 days, uh, the prices will be this, X plus. Um, but if you would like to agree to 30 days, I can honor the prices given in, in the initial um, estimate. So stuff like that, going through and making sure that it matches up as closely to your, your standards and policies. And even, you know, having it, I encourage people to even just have it as sort of like a checklist. Like, okay, I know it's 30 days, there's got to be a late fee, and I can stop work after a certain point in time. And then reading through the contract and checking things off as you find them. Or if you find that there's a difference, making a notation of it and, and then stepping back and deciding, okay, they want 45 days, I want 30 days, uh, I'm going to go back to them and request the 30 days, but I would agree to, I don't know, 40. Stuff like that. Um, uh, but if you, if you just take their contract and don't make any changes, you're unnecessarily creating problems for yourself. It's not a bad thing to make a... a amendments to a contract before you sign it. In fact, that's when you have the, the the most amount of influence. They want you. They want to hire you. They want what you are offering. So now is the point in time to ensure that the terms that you're agreeing to match up with what you need. Um, I uh, So in that, that job that I keep referencing, um, one of the terms in the standard contract I had to use um, said that uh, the contractor agreed to provide um, helicopter insurance or insurance for, for helicopter trips. And it made perfect sense in this totally different area of the country, uh, company, excuse me, where they, they, hired, uh, they hired helicopter pilots to do certain work. But I knew if I got a contract back uh, from a contractor and they hadn't either crossed that out or asked me a question about it, that this was going to be a difficult project because to me what it said is I'm not paying attention 
to what it is I'm agreeing to do up front. And so I might not pay attention to things throughout the project. In fact, when I got a contract back where nobody would comment on that, I would usually call up the project manager and say, okay, it looks like everything's mostly good and that we'll be able to get this signed in, in a couple of days. But just so you know, they don't seem to be paying attention to details. So make sure that you are really focused on, um, on that while you're working with them. Oh, man, that's... What a great point, you know, and, and one of the recurring themes of this show is, you know, I've always said marketing can solve 90% of your problems yeah. more steady marketing can do that because it buys you choices. And when you're in a situation where you have a client that expects you, let's say they expect you to, uh, to, to use your contract and, and you go through it and they won't budge on certain items, then you are in a position of strength. Right. Mm -hmm. You can decide to walk away or to, to, you know, to try to negotiate a little harder. But when you don't have that option because your pipeline's not full, then that's when people make kind of crazy, crazy mistakes. But uh, so I I, I love this. You know, I I tell you, a few years ago, I had I was working for a really big company and and they did they did that to me. They sent me their standard contractor agreement and I sat Mm -hmm. there and it took me two hours to go through yeah. it compared to mine. And I was really bold, but I could afford to do that because I had a mm-hmm. lot of work and mm-hmm. I was dealing directly with their CFO. And there were a couple of points where I thought, you know what, this is, this is maybe I'm asking for too much, <laughs> but I said, mm-hmm. forget it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to ask for, and you know what they, they gave in on pretty much everything. Oh man. Yeah. You know, one, you can't get something if you don't ask for it, but two, that standard is there for efficiency purposes for the company. It is so much easier for them if they just send that out and you don't read it and you sign it and they get to they get to go forward. But it's not written with the understanding that everybody's going to agree to those. And a lot of times the contract administrator or the, the person that you're dealing with knows that they have a lot of leeway on certain terms. And... But they're not going to tell you that they have a lot of leeway on those terms um, when they give you the contract. So it's, it is in your best interest to do exactly what you did and, and ask for the things that you need. And if you ask for too much, this is business. They'll come back and say, I can't do that, but I can do this. And that's a much better conversation to have. Absolutely. And like you said, right, this is the point in the relationship where they're going to be the most excited about working with you. Absolutely. <laughs> so really, if there's a time to ask, is, is, re- is now. Yep. Later, yep. forget it. Um, yep. Super. Well, this is, this is great, Katie. Uh, really uh, give me a lot to, to chew on here. And, and I like how you approach this because this is not the standard, okay, include this, that, and the other. You're starting with, hey, what's important to you? And mm-hmm. let's think about what's going to make a, a really big impact. Let's focus on the big items. Mm-hmm. And that right there will solve most of your problems or at least yeah. keep you from getting into some of the biggest situations you could get into. Yeah, I'm so. a big fan of investing, you know, uh, energy where it's going to be most helpful as opposed to, you know, just stressing yourself out over all the little details. Yes. Yes. So where can listeners learn more about you, your work, your services? Where can I send them? 
you can send them to workmadeforhire.net, which is my blog. It's also where people can contact me if they're interested in working with me. Uh, I also sell uh, classes through acefreelancer.com. I don't have any con- uh, classes up right this very second, but in the next uh, couple of weeks, I will be starting a new cohort of my Ace Freelancer's Guide to Getting Paid, where I go through a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today and more in a really structured way so that by the end of the uh, three or four week process, you have everything that you need to go forward and you don't have to worry about whether or not you have the tools. Um, They're there, they're baked in, you got the language, you're good to go. And we'll be able to find that at acefreelancer.com? Correct. Awesome. Well, I encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, Katie, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate you, uh, your insights and your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Ed. This was really fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And again, I wanted to remind you that you can grab the detailed show notes at b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 81. And before I sign off, I wanted to let you know that I've just opened enrollment to my B2B Business Launcher program. This is a training and coaching program that's both for new and aspiring freelance writers, copywriters, and commercial writers who are either trying to get their businesses off the ground or who have already tried doing that, but they haven't had the success they expected. They're still below that $2,000 a month mark, for example. And I will tell you, this is not for everyone. This is an intense experience for serious and committed professionals only. I only open this up about two times per year. There is an application process and we start the first week of August. So if you'd like to learn more about it, I urge you to visit b2blauncher.com forward slash program and check it out. So that brings us to the end of the episode. This has been your host, Ed Gandia. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you have yourself an awesome day. The High Income Business Writing Podcast is a production of B2B Business Launcher. Learn more at b2blauncher.com.